Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. And thank you for downloading episode 93. It's great to be with you. And I tell you what, it is really cold here at the moment. I'm recording this in the middle of the night. It's about 3 a.m. as I put this podcast together. And it uh, feels like temperature zero degrees out there. So if you are in the Northern Hemisphere, where I know there is a lot of really warm weather, in some cases actually quite dangerously warm weather, which is a bit serious, I will gladly drop box you some cold weather. All you have to do is make a payment with PayPal. It's fast, free and secure. And I will drop box you the weather that you crave because I'm good like that. A reminder that you can skip around this podcast if you have a podcast player that is capable of chapter marks. We do segment this podcast quite aggressively, so you can move from comment to comment, you can move from section to section. Apps like Downcast and Overcast for iOS support this, Pocketcast does in Android, as do a number of other iOS and Android apps. The good news is that when iOS 12 comes out, the Apple Podcast app is going to do a really good job at supporting chapters as well. So if you happen to be running the public beta of iOS 12 right now, and you have the official Apple Podcast app that is shipping in iOS 12, check out the ability to skip by chapter. It is epic. And of course, we will be summarizing that in iOS 12 without the I, Mosin Consulting's annual book on the latest that is new in iOS, of which... I have, appropriately enough, written about 12,000 words on iOS 12, and it's growing all the time. Yeah, we're hard at work on iOS 12 without the I. On the podcast today, we've got a few items of news. We've got some listener comments, and I'm also going to be speaking with Byron Harden. Now, Byron is with IC Music. It's a really innovative company that has a number of ways of teaching blind people audio production and music skills. And they are moving to online courses. So it's a good time to be talking to Byron right now. If you have ever wanted some really intensive one-on-one type of training that deals with a wide range of audio production type tasks, then IC Music may well be worth checking out. And we'll talk to Byron a little bit later in the podcast. And now, stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. The United States is very close now to officially adopting the Marrakesh Treaty. It has now passed the Senate. And if you're a policy geek, a policy wonk like me, you'll be interested in the story of how this passed the Senate and also, of course, what happens from here. But I have been following the Marrakesh Treaty with a lot of interest, and it just goes to show that good things come to those who wait. And it also goes to show that sometimes you've just got to wait for the time to be right for something. Back in... 1994, I was involved here in New Zealand in the passage of New Zealand's Copyright Act. And in those days, New Zealand's Copyright Act was revolutionary because we took the view, and in my role then as the manager of government relations for the blindness organization here, I took the view that access to printed material should be no different from access to public buildings. If a publisher publishes information, then it is public And if you have laws that say that buildings need to be accessible, then there also need to be laws that say that public information should be accessible as of right. And it shouldn't be necessary for accessible 
format libraries to have to go cap in hand to a copyright holder and say, please, sir, or please, ma'am, can we please make your material accessible to blind people? So we took this revolutionary legislation through the parliamentary process when New Zealand's Copyright Act was being redone in 1994, and we got there. And I must say, the authors were not happy initially. I remember getting a phone call in my office one day from the representative of the authors at the time, the Authors Sort of Association, and he phoned me up and he said, so Mr. Mosin, do you steal from everybody or is it only from authors that you steal from? It was quite remarkable. But in the end, they came round and New Zealand's copyright law was later emulated, including in the United States with the Chaffee Amendment in, uh, I think, about 1998. So the United States eventually had a Copyright Act that was largely modelled on that New Zealand model. And at the time, a number of us were saying, what we need is an international treaty because these laws are all very well and good and they cover national jurisdictions, but there are still issues relating to the free exchange of international special format or accessible format material. And what we need is a treaty from the World Intellectual Property Organization. And when we started floating this idea back in the late 1990s, very few people were interested. And it just goes to show that you just have to keep working on these things. You have to keep persisting. And eventually, of course, many dedicated people got the Marrakesh Treaty through and now ratification has been taking place around the world, sometimes a little bit more slowly than we would like, but it's getting there. So it is very significant that the United States Senate, by unanimous consent, and I'll come back to that in a minute, has adopted the Marrakesh Treaty. It does have to go to the House, and legislation needs to be passed there. It doesn't seem like that's going to be a problem. I suppose you never know with a political process, do you? But uh, the House comes back from recess on the 9th of July, and it looks like it's going to be in pretty good shape. So this will mean that it should be easier for people in the United States to get material from other countries and vice versa. And of course, I think NLS is universally respected around the world in terms of the quality and the quantity of the material that they are able to produce. So it is very significant and exciting news and it's all good stuff. I do want to draw your attention to this article that I found in Roll Call about this issue. And it fascinated me, really, just because I kind of like this political geekery. So I thought I'd share it with you in case it interests you as well. It says a five-year campaign for a copyright exemption designed to make it easier for the blind and physically impaired to get access to foreign works of music and literature moved a step closer to being realised under a rarely used Senate procedure. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Thursday night engineered the approval of the so-called Marrakesh Treaty by using the chamber's rarely used procedure of the standing vote. In this case, the Kentucky Republican found himself standing alone on the Senate floor after a long debate on the farm bill and thus met the threshold for treaty approval a two-thirds majority of senators present. When the presiding officer, Indiana GOP Senator Todd Young, called for senators in support to stand and be counted, McConnell was standing. When Young asked for opponents to stand, McConnell briefly sat down. The procedure was possible because the Constitution requires the agreement of two-thirds of senators present, but there's no quorum requirement. Moments later... 
McConnell won passage of the Marrakesh Treaty Bill by unanimous consent, which he likely got senators to agree to off the floor before he started the procedure. That's pretty nifty, isn't it? Anyway, well done. That's a great bit of process there. And now we wait to see that go through the House in the United States. Now, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you will know that I am a major fan of Ira. It has changed our lives. Bonnie, of course, is doing her journalism course. I'm just doing what I do. And it is just a remarkable service. And it's good to see that at this time at the US conventions, Ira are announcing new things. One of the things I did want to draw to your attention from Ira is their new messages feature. This has a whole bunch of use cases that really excite me. There are times, of course, when you can't talk to an agent. In fact, I was in a situation like this the other day where I had Ira guide me through a fairly large hotel, large by New Zealand standards anyway. You know, it's not large by those massive US conference standards. But it was um, really helpful to have an IRA agent guide me through. And then I had to give a presentation to a board. And I got into the boardroom. And, of course, I wanted to thank the agents and just you know, talking to the agent about a couple of things. And it looked like I was kind of being a bit rude because I was quietly talking into my phone while the board meeting was going on. So that's one use case. Another use case is where you might be in a situation where there is some material on a whiteboard or on some sort of electronic screen. One would hope that in this enlightened age, you'll get an accessible copy of the PowerPoint or whatever format you need it in. But, you know, let's get real. It doesn't always happen, does it? And you just need the information. If, if that information is key to you understanding your presentation and being productive in your job, you just need to get it done however you need to get it done then and there and deal with the accessibility issues later. So now with the IRA messages feature, you can actually contact an agent by text. You can carry on a conversation by text message within the app. So you can text the agent and the agent can text you back. That's great, of course, for deafblind people. Just a huge deal for them. So often neglected in terms of the needs that this community has. So that's wonderful that deafblind people can use IRA now with the aid of a Braille display. But it's also good for those situations where maybe you can't talk, but it's fine for the agent to talk. So you can text and the agent can talk back to you. So there's a bunch of scenarios. You may be able, for example, to text the agent when you're on the runway in a plane just before the doors close and tell them what flight you're on and that you intend to call an agent when you get off the plane. And they will have checked out the gate that you're coming in on. They'll have information for you at the airport. So the IRA messages feature, which is now in the latest version of the iOS app, and I believe it is coming to the Android version quite soon, is a significant development. Also, Horizon glasses from IRA. This is the next generation of IRA technology. The glasses have a much wider field of view. It's a standalone device, which will make it really easy for those who are less tech savvy to take advantage of IRA. They just turn this thing on and press a button. Couldn't be simpler. Those devices are starting to ship. So they'll be getting into the hands of people and no doubt there will be people who will be commenting on those in the near future. So lots of good things happening with this amazing game-changing service. Accordingly, I've updated our blog post on the Mosin Consulting website, which I did promise to keep up to date about IRA. So if you would like more information about IRA, how it works, how you can have it, and how you can get a free month 
And if you want to support the Blind Side podcast, you know, because we do this for free every week and all those nice things, and you are thinking about becoming an IRA member, then I would be so super grateful if you would join using the referral link that I've included in that blog post, because you get a free month of IRA, which is nothing to be sneezed at, is it? And I get a free month too, which is not only nothing to be sneezed at, but it makes me go squee. And I mean, you want to make me go squee, right? So I would appreciate that if you are looking at getting IRA, then do fill in the referral link um, that I've put in the blog post and um, we'll, we'll both benefit. So thank you so much in advance if you choose to do that. And here's an article I just couldn't resist including because it's actually quite scary. <laughs> On June the 16th, Marco Zapita, who's a blind guy in Arizona, he was trying to find an available urinal in a quick trip restroom. See, Americans don't like saying toilet. I've never worked out why. Everybody else just talks about public toilets. But um, no, in America, you have to call them restrooms because somehow talking about what that actually really is is somehow unseemly. We're all different. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say toilet because we don't have any qualms about calling it a toilet, all right? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't want to get sidetracked. He says, I didn't hear anybody coming out adding that he was snapping his fingers. He's doing the echolocation thing, right? He's snapping his finger and skimming his hand against the wall to navigate due to his blindness. As Mr. Zapita approached what he thought was an open urinal, he said a man whipped around, shouted, and pushed him away. And I go, okay, no, no, this is not going to happen to me. He says that he gets cursed at or pushed around almost daily because of his blindness. He said he started pushing back until he felt the man's radio. It turns out the man was a uniformed Phoenix Police Department officer. Oh dear. But Mr. Zapita said he couldn't tell that and that the officer hadn't told him. Mr. Zapita let up. That's when the officer took him to the ground. I said a couple of times to him, I'm blind, please leave me alone. I didn't know you were a police, Mr. Zapita said. Sergeant Mercedes Fortune, that really sounds like a name out of, uh, you know, one of those Western drama things that we might play on um, Mushroom Escape, right? Sergeant Mercedes Fortune uh, of uh, Phoenix Police said that Mr. Zapita punched the officer in the face adding that the officer couldn't tell that Mrs. Zapita was disabled or visually impaired as he approached him. A conformer device. I presume that means like some sort of prosthetic. In Mr. Zapita's right eye socket fell to the floor during the encounter, he said. And when that happened, this thing came out and it was on the floor. He saw that thing on the floor and I turned around to him and I go, Look at my eyes. I'm blind, Mr. Zapita said. Fortune, this is the officer, said that the, uh, who was speaking for the Arizona police, right, said that the officer realized Mr. Zapita was blind when he saw the device. Yeah, that tends to work, right? You know, if people don't believe you're blind, I, d I can't do this because I don't have prosthetics, but if people don't believe you're blind, people do this, right? They're in bars and they're getting a hard time and people take their eyeballs out and do terrible things. Mr. Zapita spent the night in jail. All over what he said was a misunderstanding the officer chose to escalate. He could have said, hey, I'm over here, instead of reacting so aggressively to me, Mr. Zapita said. Phoenix police 
said the officer did suffer some minor injuries to his face. Mr Zapita wasn't hurt. On Friday, a Maricopa County Attorney's Office spokesman said that Mr Zapita wouldn't be charged for the incident. Interesting, I don't quite know what to make of that, but I I thought I would include the story and see what you would like to make of it. And if you want to comment on any of this, the email address is theblindside at mosin.org. You can send an email with good old-fashioned text in it, like we used to, or you can attach an audio file if you would like to do that, or you can call the feedback line, and that is a US-based number. It is 719-270-5114. That is 719-270-5114. And let's take a look at some of the many comments that we've received this week. It's been another busy old week, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Nice to know someone's out there. Is Jan Brown, and she's written in, in the email, and she says, I was thrilled listening to your interview with Judy Dixon and the discussion of my favorite iOS feature on screen Braille. I don't know where I would be without it. I started my on-screen Braille life with Braille Touch and moved along through mBraille, still the most elegant Braille app to modern on-screen iOS Braille. I can't wait to hear an entire podcast on this, one of my favorite topics. I know I can be downright dull on my evangelistic fervor concerning this app. Woo! Also, says Jan, I am a fan of both my Victor and Apple devices. I use both the phone and iPad hard each day and let them sleep and charge while I use my Victor for night and sadly, 3 a.m. middle of the night, sometimes reading. I use the phone with Apple Books, Kindle, Audible, Bard and Bookshare. The Victor contains just Bard. Podcasts come through Overcast on iOS and NFB Newsline is on both. I prefer the phone for daytime gym reading because I can also receive calls if necessary and check email and the like. Thanks for all of your great and interesting interviews. Well, thank you for writing in, Jan, and and for listening too. Hi, Jonathan. It's Derek. And I just thought I would stop by to let you know a few things that have helped me minimize the inconvenience of reinstalling Windows. The first of which is that a surprisingly large amount of software keeps its settings in the application data folder, which you can see by going to the run dialog and typing percent app data percent and then pressing enter. And all you have to do to preserve these settings is simply copy the corresponding folders somewhere in a safe place and then just reinstall the programs and see that everything is as you left it. The only time this would be ill-advised is, of course, if a program is acting weird. You wouldn't want to back that up and instantiate those settings on a new install of Windows. That would be kind of counterproductive. The second inconvenience, for me anyway, when reinstalling Windows is all the UI tweaks that need to happen to make things feel like my computer. And I'm sure you have your preferences as well. And a lot of those preferences can be changed by a program that Steve Matsura told me about some time ago called Win Arrow Tweaker, W-I-N-A-E-R-O, to clarify. And that's one of those strange little programs with a tree view, with each branch of the tree presenting options that you can tab through. So there's more in there than what seems to be at first glance. And it's allowed me to cut a lot of crap that runs in the background and that goes on visually. Good to hear from you, Derek. I do back up my app data folder on a regular basis. It is a very good tip for those who don't know about it. So I just go ahead and I copy that folder 
over to my network attached storage device, my Synology device on a regular basis. So I have a good copy of it and it is amazing how useful it is, not just when reinstalling Windows or setting up Windows on a new machine for which it is extremely useful, but every so often you just find that settings become corrupted or you've done something and you don't know quite how to undo it. And sometimes the quickest way is to just go ahead and replace that particular folder from within the app data folder for the application that's giving you the grief and you're back up and running again. So that is a very good tip. I appreciate you sharing it. And let's cross the pond from where Derek is to where Louise is. Hi, Louise. She's in the UK and she says, Hi, Jonathan. Whilst I completely agree with your views regarding religious grounds not being an acceptable reason for a taxi driver to refuse transporting a guide dog, I disagree regarding your views on refusals linked to allergies. I am a guide dog owner and I personally feel refusing to take a guide dog due to having an allergy is acceptable and is the position in law within the UK. I feel that if a driver has a valid exemption certificate, which has been registered with the local authority license board, it is an acceptable readjustment for a blind person to have a different driver. If we follow the logic, if you can't transport all people, then they should not be a taxi driver. I'm concerned what this would lead to. As a blind person, I require some reasonable adjustments to maintain my job. Normally, driving to people's homes is an essential requirement of my role, and I would struggle to maintain my job if this reasonable adjustments, such as taxis, were not funded. I personally would not agree with someone expressing the view that if I cannot meet an essential criteria of my job, I should find another profession. Thank you very much, Louise. I appreciate that. And I do have a couple of comments about this just to sort of stimulate the discussion a bit more, maybe. The first thing I would say is that for the blind side, I have a Google News RSS feed set up. So every day I read dozens and dozens of stories about blindness. And that's where we get quite a few ideas for what we might talk about here on the blind side. And I follow up and I solicit interviews and, you know, it takes a lot of reading and a lot of time. And I tell you this because I get to read a lot of blindness stories from around the world. And purely based on that anecdotal evidence, it seems to me like the UK has a really big problem with guide dog refusals and taxis. So I do wonder whether the UK provisions are actually working. I also just come back to my original point. Is it necessarily fair that if I have a meeting to go to and, well, I may choose not to disclose that I have a guide dog because I don't think that I need to, or perhaps I'm going to a taxi stand or taxi rank. It's called both in different parts of the world. Well, let's say I'm going from one meeting to another. I'm on a tight deadline. I go out there. There's a cab on the rank and it says, sorry, I'm not taking you because I have an allergy to dogs or a religious objection to dogs. I'm being inconvenienced majorly. I could be late for my meeting. That could actually literally be a significant financial cost to me. If I'm in a profession where that meeting might get me a significant sale, say, or a significant contract, if I'm in that kind of profession and I turn up late, we know that first impressions are really important, right? So if I've budgeted time-wise to get into a taxi to go somewhere and then the taxi declines to take me and it takes a while for another cab to get to the rank and it can do you know sometimes if you get refused by a taxi it might take another 
10, 15 minutes for another taxi to show up. You're late. It could have cost you financially. So I am not sure that we're comparing apples with apples when we compare a taxi driver who refuses to take a blind person because they say they have allergies to a blind person who uses a quite legitimate alternative technique to get from A to B. Because you're not really inconveniencing someone, are you? I mean, if you can get to an appointment on time, when you say you will, by hiring a driver or, for that matter, using taxis, then you're completely fulfilling your role. So I do think there's a difference there. And of course, it loops back, doesn't it? Because if you do rely on taxis to get from A to B to do the job, if you are not being funded to pay for a dedicated driver, for example, and you say, I'm just going to use the taxi system and you can reimburse me for that, and the taxi system lets you down, then suddenly your job could be in jeopardy. So I reiterate my point that in my view, if you have an allergy, then driving a taxi might not be the profession for you. Good to hear your point of view, Louise. I really appreciate you sending that in. Hello, Jonathan. This is Easy Cleghorn, and I wanted to also respond very briefly to your comments about blindness devices versus one, meaning the iPhone. And first of all, I totally agree with you completely and entirely that it is incredible to just have all of that productivity and all of those applications on one device. With that said, I had a question for you. And as I have said before, I am completely unashamedly your biggest fan ever. Um, and you are in my book, the absolute cream of the crop when it comes to blind journalists. Karen Kinniger, who is the director of the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, spoke this morning as I record this, June 1st, at the American Council of the Blind Convention. In her remarks, she mentioned that they are looking eventually to, as she put it, go away from touchscreens and away from computers to a device that you speak to similar to the Amazon Echo to get all of your books, and they will then be digitally delivered. My question, and it sent up a bit of a red flag, is do you think that that will replace our wonderful barred mobile application? Because I don't want to have to lug around multiple devices, just like we were talking about, even if it would be free. The convenience of having any book I want in my pocket, along with the same device that I text on, is a beautiful thing. I heard Karen's presentation to ACB, and I didn't interpret it that way. I think that what she was talking about was what will replace the current cartridge-based NLS talking book player. When she mentioned Bard, she got a big cheer from the audience. And so I think that NLS are well aware of how popular BARD is with its readership or usership, even if that number is quite small compared to the total NLS user base. This is one of the things that I keep going on about on podcasts like this and my blog posts. I see this an awful lot. Look, the majority of blind people are over the age of 65. Most people become blind when they're seniors, due to conditions like age-related maculopathy, sometimes called macular degeneration. And it may change over time, and it's not exclusive, because, of course, you do see some older folk who go blind later in life who just take to the iPhone and run with it, and that's fantastic. But for a lot of people, there's a whole combination of factors going on, and they include the grieving process, the fact that, gosh, you know, I've lost 
a significant amount of or all of my sight. And I'm really starting to feel my age as a result of that. There's there's sometimes depression. There are, there are things to deal with as a result of those age-related disabilities. So there's that. There's also the fact that today's seniors may not have had the exposure to technology that tomorrow's seniors will have. So for a bunch of reasons, even the NLS players of today, which are pretty straightforward and simple to use, do cause some challenges for some people. So I thought that Karen's presentation was actually really inspiring because she and NLS, who do a lot of very high-level thinking about this stuff well in advance, you know, they thought about the cartridge system when most libraries around the world were using CD, and they decided that they would bypass the CD and go to a different kind of medium, which turned out to be the right thing. At the time, I didn't think it was the right thing, and I was wrong, (laughs) and they were right. And um, so they're thinking about these things all the time. And what they're noticing is that voice user interfaces are becoming more and more robust. And if you can have a conversation with your NLS player and not have to fiddle with buttons or cartridges, if you can just have your books come to you and you can create a very friendly conversational interface, then hopefully that will empower more people who feel alienated perhaps at the moment to fully enjoy that remarkable treasure trove that is the NLS catalogue. But I didn't hear from that presentation that that would mean that BARD would disappear. This was more an alternative to the current non-BARD access that people currently have who who get uh, their material physically delivered to them. Hi, Jonathan. This is Irene. Um, I've been listening to your discussions about audiobooks and um, libraries for the blind, and I was going to say I've investigated using public libraries. Public libraries do not offer everything because they can pick and choose what they want. They can use three or four different audio apps, and they also, even on those, can pick and choose what books they want to offer. And to get the best selection, you might have to go to three or four different counties and register on the sites through all those counties to get the best selection of books. And another thing is when you do that, you only get a choice of either one week or two weeks of the book. So if you finish a book in two days, um, you might have to, if they have a limit on how many books you can get, you might have to wait or um, something like that. I do appreciate NLS because I can read a book um for as many days as I need to, or as few days, and that's what I like. Thank you so much for that. And in the comments that I was making, really what I was doing was kind of a bit of stargazing, I suppose, and thinking about what might the future look like. So I'm certainly not suggesting that special libraries or accessible format libraries should suddenly disappear because we need them right now, especially given what I said in the previous comment about the uh, age of many NLS and and similar patrons of services around the world. I guess what I'm curious about is what might the future look like? How can we unlock more of these titles that we can't access in any format at the moment? Or how can we unlock more of these titles so that as services like Kindle and Apple Books become more popular, there will be more and more material published on these devices in these formats How can we make sure 
that every blind person can read any book that they would like. I guess that's the ultimate goal, isn't it? To make sure that you can pick up any book you want the moment it's released and read it. And sure, it's a pipe dream right now, but it's interesting just to explore how that might happen. But that doesn't detract in any way from all the really good points you make about what a fantastic service you have in the US and we have in many other parts of the world with these accessible libraries. Hi, Jonathan and Blindside listeners. This is Daniel Summer. A couple of things. First, Jonathan, I really enjoy your podcast. I really, really enjoy it. Secondly, um, I had a question. A couple of questions, anyway. Have either of you used Thunderstorm or how screen readers? Are either one of them still in development? I think Thunder is Dolphin Computer Access. Good to hear from you, Daniel. I haven't heard about Thunder for a wee while now, so I don't know whether that is still out there or not. Maybe somebody can tell us about that. Dolphin, they are definitely alive and well and producing Howl and Supernova. So yes, they are still definitely going and are pretty widely used, particularly in Europe, I think, where they have uh, quite a bit of a market share. So yes, they still exist for sure. Here's Mary Ward who says, I would like to comment on a topic that has come up over and over again, the use of sleep shades at rehabilitation centres and other facilities for the blind. I spent 15 years working as a rehabilitation teacher, much of it at a residential centre which used sleep shades training. When we first implemented it, I believed it would be very empowering to those of us with little to no vision and that it would be of great benefit to those who were gradually losing their remaining vision. Now that I've had a good deal of experience with sleep shade training as both a student and a professional, I believe that it is a valuable tool for us to have in our toolboxes, but that it is not necessarily appropriate for all blind students in all classroom situations. Some students benefited a great deal from the training, especially in the area of orientation and mobility. Our centre seems to be graduating more competent and confident travellers than ever before when the blindfold policy was instituted. However, not all students benefited from sleep shade training in O&M or in other areas. Many students with partial sight went immediately back to all their old habits as soon as the blindfold came off. They did this even despite the institution of a short transition period, which was supposed to allow them to adjust True believers in the sleep shade technique often complained that this problem was largely due to unacknowledged negative attitudes of the teachers towards total blindness and non-visual techniques. Even if this very subjective charge could somehow be proven true, however, I do not believe that dogma should ever replace evidence-based methods when we evaluate the efficacy of a given teaching strategy. In effect, Relying on such arguments is tantamount to bringing religion into our professional practice. We just shouldn't be talking about dogmas in debates about teaching methods, no matter how deeply and passionately we might believe in them. After my 15 years in the profession, I came away believing that the sleep shade technique is one of many techniques that can and should be used to help people adjust to vision loss, especially if that vision loss is severe or progressive. As with other techniques, many other factors need to be considered, especially the presence and severity of other disabilities. For example, a person with a recent severe traumatic brain injury 
might need a notepad to keep up with daily activities and may not have the braille or listening skills to do this without a handwritten booklet. The sleep shades might also benefit an individual in some aspects of training but not others. For example, someone with stable 2200 vision might be expected to be able to use screen magnification software for many years to come without much reliance on a screen reader, but they might still benefit from some O&M and daily living skills. Sleep shades might be used to put a group of students onto a level playing field so they can share equally in a given activity, such as a rope climbing activity or a game. For me, the sleep shade technique is a very wonderful and useful technique, but it is not a panacea. It needs to move off the pedestal and into the teacher's toolbox where it belongs. Thank you so much for such an eloquent message, Mary. Really appreciate that. And that's just a sample of some of the comments we've received. If you would like to leave yours, reminder of the details, 719-270-5114. In the United States is the feedback line number, 719-270-5114, or email with an audio attachment or some text to theblindside at mosin.org. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. Sound and music and engineering. There are a lot of blind people who are interested in playing with all of these things and it is possible to have a pretty successful and potentially lucrative career doing it. And a company that wants to help make that happen is IC Music. And I thought we'd get Byron Harden, who founded IC Music, on the podcast to talk about it. Welcome, Byron. And Jonathan, thank you. Thank you. Tell me a bit about yourself, first of all, because you haven't been blind all your life, right? No, a uh, uh, pretty interesting story uh, by, by that way. Um, so I lost my sight at seven years old uh, to uh, Stephen Johnson's, um, which pretty much is a breakdown of the mucous membranes. Um, and that was uh, due to allergic reaction to uh, penicillin. Um, however, uh, I was blind um, from seven to 16. Okay. Um, at 16, had a cornea transplant in the left eye, and with enough vision uh, restored uh, to to operate as a very very high partial, uh, and that that was that way up until uh, I was 38 years old, um, where I then uh, contracted uh, glaucoma, which pretty much was a then was a permanent loss. Were you expecting that that might be the case that this? restoration of vision might be temporary or did it come as a really big shock a bit of a blow to you Jonathan you know this is this this is this is an interesting world uh in in that regard that I lived day by day by day with this kind of gloom hanging in the balance right of 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 man am I ever going to you know, lose the sight. I, I feel like I am going to lose the sight one day. And, uh, and lo and behold, uh, maybe I, I lived it into existence. I don't know, but uh, it definitely was on my mind on, on a constant basis. That's a tough business. Have you always been interested in sound, music, audio, all those things? Since I was four years old, uh, I think at four years old, I, I, I can remember uh, <laughs> uh disturbing my mom if you will uh with the uh with the boxes and the the coat hangers and banging them about and 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 and, and making noises at five and six in the morning you know musician hours not 
Uh, <laughs> but uh, I uh, was playing drums. I started playing drums at that time. And, it, you know, and it was via a cardboard box. Uh, and then I moved on to uh, uh, obviously a, uh, a conventional drum set probably about five years later. And then that's when I started disturbing the neighbors. <laughs> so your interest in music actually predates your blindness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I uh, Yeah, for sure. As a blind person from in that period, from until you were 16, did you pursue music in any kind of formal way, take lessons, all that kind of stuff? I started uh, kind of, I pursued it, um, not so much formally. Uh, I, I went to um, ISVI, which is Illinois State School for the Visually Impaired. And um, and it was a, it's an amazing uh, institution, I, I must say. Uh, especially, I, I thought it was a pretty forward uh, thinking and operating uh, uh, institution. Um, they allowed us to to tear up toys and bang on them and and use them as drums. And they they had drums there. They had music classes there. But this is like on the extracurricular side of things, right? Because or extracurriculum side of things um, to enter in the talent shows and you know just play the drums in the talent show with. with no vocals, no other instrumentation. And, and, and that's when I kind of fell in love with the idea of, 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 of playing, you know, more in a, um, in a, in a, in a band mate situation. Uh, we started a band. My very first band in life was called hot ice. And it's uh, an interesting title. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think all my titles, I see music, you know, it always all has a play on things uh, on, on the opposite. And uh, and what was interesting was with Hot Ice was uh, we actually had gigs, you know, and um, I was a guitarist and keyboardist and myself on drums and uh, no bass player in that band. But, you know, then we had a guy that was playing the Tonka truck, which I, th- I thought that was pretty interesting, but nonetheless, pretty cool. <laughs> So you have been doing music all your life, right? I mean, has it been your main career or have you been doing music as a kind of a part-time hobby passion thing? Uh, you know, I, you know, when I graduated high school, uh, you know, my mom said, well, what do you want to do? Um, yeah, I was, I was being groomed to go to college and, um, and, you know, in a more formal sense of going to college and uh, uh, being a vision instructor in uh, Henrico County, Virginia. And I didn't want to go that route. Um, I wanted to pursue music uh, professionally. And so uh, upon graduating high school, uh, I asked for a train ticket to uh, Philadelphia to uh, see a friend of the family. Um, basically, it's like my uncle. And he really bought me into uh, what the business was about, you know, I became a huge mentor of mine. Uh, I went on some gigs with him and uh, and that that really um, put it into perspective for me for, for the rest of my life. But then shortly thereafter, um, like all musicians or any any kind of operative in this industry, uh, you know, you, you, you move over into having to support that. So I had a landscape company for a while, uh, did very well with that. Uh, But that was just really just to support my my real habit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, and so, uh, so yes, so I, I, to answer the question in short, yes, I've been pursuing it uh, informally, formally, 
professionally, um, sometimes unprofessionally. But uh, nonetheless, uh, yes, I have been pursuing it uh, all over. You will have seen a lot of change in the way that music is produced. And I guess I'm of an age where I still feel this enormous sense of gratitude that we can now produce really you know, commercial quality material in Absolutely. a home studio. And all the digital technology that we have at our disposal now really has equalized things. It's leveled the playing field in terms of, you know, even if you don't make it really big and somebody doesn't come along and sign you up and make you a star, you can produce some enormously successful stuff just Absolutely. sitting at home. It's, it's a pretty cool deal, right? Yes. Well, you know, this is a thing that I say, uh, we deal a lot uh, here um, at IC Music with the interaction with uh, rehab services, and uh, and that's one of, that's one of the that's one of the lanes, one of the areas that that we that I, I travel uh, frequently with them, and telling them like, hey, look, this technology that exists now uh, has made it that the large format studios that is not where the employment is. The employment now exists in, in a person's bedroom, you know, it exists in 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 a dorm room. Uh, in a basement, in a kitchen, in a bathroom, wherever you can squeeze a computer in and a, and a couple of hard drives and a microphone, you have a recording space. And that's just the reality of it now, you know, um, which is which is which is awesome for blind people. It's funny how things come and go in the 1950s, of course. Some of those early rock musicians used to put microphones in the bathroom because that was the way they got reverb. You know, that was pure natural reverb they were doing in those days. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'd say capturing ambient is 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 and always has been uh, uh, the what I call the second engineer in the room, if you will. How did you get the idea for icy music? Good question. Uh, <laughs> uh, that came through a conversation uh, back in 2007 um, with my uh, my oldest son's uh, mother and I. We, we, we were sitting and we were talking and she said, you know, uh, you have the visual issue and you've adopted a lot of techniques and um, you should you should teach people how to do this. Like who need this? And I was like, oh, really? Hmm, good idea. But didn't think much about it. Obviously, six years later in 2013, uh, formed the LLC. And what does it do? If, if, if someone comes up to you in the street and just wants kind of like a pricey, an elevator pitch about what IC Music does, how would you describe the company's work? Um, IC Music is a service-based company uh, who specializes in uh, training the uh, blind you know, or visually impaired in audio production and studio engineering um, as it pertains to adaptive technology. Um, so we, we live in the diversity and inclusion uh, lane uh, 100%. Now, that involves, I imagine, uh, teaching hardware and software. And this intrigues me a bit because... We were talking a couple of weeks ago now to Neil Ewers, who, of course, does a lot of recording himself and has been very successful mm -hmm. in this area. And he has a lot of gear. And I was making the comment to him then that I think as blind people, we've become less tolerant of memorizing inaccessible gadgets. I can remember 13, 14 years ago, I had an Edderall R1 
which was okay, except that it ate batteries like you wouldn't believe. But it, <laughs> it, it was a very nice recorder. And I yeah. put together a cheat sheet for that, and I would carry it around on my Braille note at the time, and I'd have to sort of look up this cheat sheet to remember how to set certain effects or parameters to record in a particular way or whatever. We're not as willing to put up with that stuff anymore, are we? You, you know, um, <laughs> it's funny because uh, we traded that off for keystrokes. You know, uh, you, you got 12 million keystrokes, you know, and I'm exaggerating here, but it's enough totally to 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 warrant someone's mind to go crazy, um, especially mine, you know, old and feeble as it is. Uh, I sit there, I look at the multiple platforms and pieces of software that we use um, on a day-to-day just to adapt, you know, um, and just in that one apparatus, the computer, you know, it, 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 it's mind-boggling to me uh, that, that I say, hey, look, Byron, um, now you can, this one has a thousand keystrokes, this piece of software has 2,000, this one has over 700, Jesus Jones, what, 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 so I, I think we've traded it off, um, and, uh, and, and allocated, uh, our brain, uh, power, uh, just a little bit, uh, differently than, than what it used to be. But, but I will, I will agree with you, uh, that we, we, we've, uh, we've definitely moved on. Yeah. And I think the two key differences there though, are first that, you often have menus, so you will you will memorize the keystrokes that you use all the time, but often you will be able to drill down through accessible menus that talk through your screen reader and give you some sort of confirmation. And then secondly, because you're running a screen reader, you can often get some sort of audible confirmation that the effect that you think you want is the effect you actually got, whereas you might not be able to get that on an inaccessible piece of hardware. I agree a thousand percent with you, Jonathan. Um, a funny story, real quick. Um, <laughs> I, I remember when I started really recording, which was, you know, my first experiences was in reel to reel, you know, two inch tape. Yeah, great days, and, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, and and digital tape too, as well. You know, DA eighty eights and yeah, thirty uh, eights and stuff like that. And 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 I remember. Uh, not being able to see that well at this time, but still able to see and thinking like, oh my God, well, you know, what would I do if I had to cut this tape? How could I do that? Um, and I, I was like, I said, man, with computers, and this is what I was saying back in the 90s. I was like, man, with computers, if, if they just would just come up with some, man, they could, I, I could just, you know, and these were just all these thoughts that were just, you know, unfinished and and, 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 and and me just rambling in my mind of the possibilities. And here in 2018, here we are, or here, you know, here's IC Music, like specializing in just that, you know? So I agree with you a thousand percent. You seem to be at the moment focusing on very specific, specific training for specific individuals, right? I mean, you. I, I think I read in your material that you only handle a couple of uh, students at a time, and it's very personalized in terms of what you will teach them. Yes. Uh, now, that's in the hand-over-hand model. 
um, a hand-over-hand model, which is called the Music Production Engineering Program. Uh, we can only train uh, two persons at a time, um, which we call learners. This is the case due to a lot of reasons. Main reason is the level of intensity, right? Um, you're talking about a class that is 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., four days a week. And you're in a recording studio. And you got computers talking all over the place. And you got microphones all over the place. And you got blind people. That equation equals, you know, if you have, <laughs> if you add to that equation five more people or three more people into that mix, and you're starting to look at something uh, a bit dangerous and, 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 and counterproductive, I may add, too, you know, because then you worry about the semantics more than you worry about the, the, the quality or the substance of the, uh, of the actual training. Uh, so, yes, yes. When people come to you for that hand-over-hand training, are there prerequisites? Do they have to know some things about audio, or can they start completely from scratch, never having done any audio before? Um, we've taken individuals who um, have no experience and um, you know, bring them to a place within two months uh, of, of, of using a DAW, you know, which is digital audio workstations. Um, the program is 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 set up to to be a means to the next step and not a means to the end, like a lot of uh, rehab training is. What would you expect will happen then after they graduate the program? Um, a lot of individuals, um, you know, we know that from the what we call we 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 we, we perform what we call a a pie evaluation, which is a participant intake eval. Um, which is a four-hour process for that particular um, format of training. Um, in that evaluation, you know, we're looking at skill set. We're looking at, you know, techno te- uh, technological skill set. We're looking at um, direction and which way a person wants to go. Is it conventional employment? Is it uh, entrepreneurial direction? And either one of those um, choices that are made, then that's how we, we gear the training. Now, when a person leaves, uh, generally what they set out to do, they're able to accomplish at, at least to a degree. Um, there's generally some some um, some subsequent training that has to happen. So, for instance, if it's a person who wants to uh, move towards the entrepreneurial lane, then we say, OK, hey, look, um, you're going to need some business training. Um a lot of the rehab services now are starting to move in that direction before they even send them to us. Uh, this is not, you know, not the cheapest tuition by far. Um, so with that being said, you know, rehab services say, hey, look, if we're going to pay for you to, if we're going to sponsor you to go to this program, we're going to need to know that you're super serious. And uh, and so they've been vetting folks and um, and I've been applauding. And, and, and screaming, you know, their praises uh, for that, uh, because we're only interested in, in, in training individuals who are serious in obtaining whatever the goal is, whether it's a vocational or educational goal. So like, getting right back to the question you, you asked, which was, you know, what, what do they do when they leave? It's like, OK, either they're starting their own business. Um, if it's an educational thing and they want to go and obtain uh, an engineering degree. Uh, as far as audio is concerned, uh, then we, we, we prep for that too as well. 
Um, so yeah, that's, and then they'll go to the college. So we don't we don't replace um, instant you know uh, educational institutions. You know we 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 work with that connectivity. So obviously they have to learn how to navigate um, the software, the hardware before moving into uh, you know a conventional curriculum at any kind of four year or two year or vocational situation. Which makes a lot of sense um, because a lot of these professors <laughs> are not equipped with with the uh, ability to train someone uh, with adaptive tech, or even worse, they may not even believe it's possible. I've, I've, I, we just ran into a gentleman. Uh, we haven't trained this guy, but we, uh, he he approached us about training, and uh, he was like, you know, uh, you know, my my my, my instructor tells me. Uh, that uh, that a blind person you, you just can't edit away if you can't yeah. cut it because you can't see it. I'm I'm like oh re- really? <laughs> That's new to me because I get paid to edit waves. <laughs> I tell you what, it's pretty ironic given that I mean what we're talking about is editing sound, right? And somebody's saying to a blind person, you can't edit sound if you can't see it. <laughs> there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the craziest thing. Yeah. There are a number of outcomes, I guess, that could come from a course like this. So you talked about entrepreneurship. I imagine people may be able to set up their own little studio, and if they have a voice talent, they could they could voice commercials. They may get into some sort of podcasting for profit, I guess, uh, audio books, and then of course there's the full recording of of music as well, either for them for the for themselves, if they're musicians in their own right, or for other people. So. Uh, and then I think in in the material I read about you, I I read about DJing, which is a fascinating area, man. I mean, some of those some of those DJs, the way they are um, up mixing and doing things with beats and pitch and things that I just am not qualified really to talk about. It's stunning what they come up with. I, I we went to the Paul McCartney concert here in New Zealand in December of last year, and they had a DJ on before him. They didn't have a support act; they just had a DJ, and he was on for an hour doing the most crazy mix of Paul McCartney and Beatles tracks. It was just stunning. And, yeah. you know, knowing as I do, because I have perfect pitch, um, the different pitches and tempos and things that those tracks originally started at and hearing them all in sync in that way, those people who are really good at this, they have such a gift. I tell you, uh, Clarence Griffin is our, uh, he's our DJ uh, instructor. And, magnificent just all of our instructors just all nine of them just hands down there's no ic music without these guys if you're uh enrolled in one of the accessibility classes your instructor is blind and that's what they do for a living is whatever they're teaching that's what that's what they're that's what they're how they're putting food on their table and um and this is a conscious thing this is a very uh uh, very meant to be or very purposeful thing that that we make those choices to put those people in those in those positions so that because uh, someone like yourself may say uh well hey look you know i want i want to do that club dates i want to be a, i want to have a residency um we've had people come in and wanted to <laughs> wanted to oddly enough do one thing like do mastering or something like that, or, you know, uh, 
pre-production, engineering, or whatever the case may be, and left here DJing. And it's it's it, it and went out and got work based on it. You know, so it's 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 amazing. I mean, I DJ myself. I'm totally blind. I can't, I can't express. I can't, I can't express like, like, I mean, in anything that a blind person does, you know, uh, independence is, I think the number one, um, the number one reward. If you can be independent and, and then if you could be really good at it. And then after that, if, if you can start making money at it. Oh man. Oh, this, this becomes, it's, it's unreal of what happens to a person after that. Um, so, so yeah, this, this technology is, is, is really amazing like that. <laughs> My first after school job, uh, a long time ago when I was a kid was actually as a DJ in a skating rink. And of course, in those days, being a DJ meant spinning vinyl, you know, we had a couple of turntables and, um, and, uh, they called me DJ roller blind. I was up there in the, <laughs> in the box um, working the lighting board and spinning the discs, so you never know. I, you know, when I, if if I ever retire or something, um, I might come to you and, and decide that I'm just going to have a whole new career, going back to my roots and and doing new style DJing somewhere. Yeah. I don't even know if they have skating rinks anymore. But, um, yeah, there, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff. Are you a, a Mac house or a Windows house? Do you have a preference for the platform that you work in? Uh, me myself, uh, our our studio here is um, is Mac based, right? Uh, Apple based stuff, but um, we we train on on all platforms. Um, as a matter of fact, we are uh, uh, getting ready to um, launch our our virtual classes. So this training now we've taken it online uh, in real time training. And so, uh, with that being said, uh, Mac. And Windows, um, we we had to, uh, you know, make sure that we were proficient in both lanes. Can you tell us a bit about that and how the virtual classes work and what you'll be teaching and how people can um, learn about those? Yeah, great question. Yeah, the, you know, the thing is, is 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 um, person expresses interest and uh, they become a learner. Uh, and uh, you know what what we what we've been able to do with these classes is um uh, uh persons pay everything happens on on the website itself um and so you go you look and see what course you want uh go and you sign up for that course you pay for it everything right there um i will it's usually myself i'm usually the one that is uh, doing an evaluation so that i can inform <clears throat> the instructor um, of how to proceed in the training with you uh, or and or what to expect. Um, after that, classes start. And what happens is, is we train on Zoom. Uh, Zoom being a highly accessible, an amazing platform. We haven't had too much issue with that, uh, you know, training individuals how to use Zoom. Um, and we wanted to... Well, I'll come back to that because it's, it's, that's going to be a long, drawn-out story. I will say this. Uh, we wanted to use Zoom um, because it was real-time. We wanted the instructor to be uh, there while the learner um, was learning. We didn't want it to be an asynchrony-type training. So that class 
depending on what it is, the course uh, will last for however many designated hours that are there. And um, and that's generally anywhere from uh, six sessions. Each session usually lasts about two hours. So that's anywhere from six sessions all the way up to 12, 14, 16 sessions, depending on which course. Um, and after that, completion, and you're off to the races on whatever it is that you want to do. Can you give me an example of some of the skills or applications that you're teaching this way? Um, we are uh, training uh, Reaper. Um, that is uh, Derek Lane and uh, Gianluca Polero. Uh, we are training uh, songwriting, uh, navigating Pro Tools. Those courses, those courses are trained. Uh, our trainer is Kevin Reeves. Uh, the DJ course, of course, um, that is uh, Clarence Griffin uh, as well. Um, audio mixing and Pro Tools, uh, complete control, uh, and uh, actually machine as well, which is not accessible out the box. Um, these proprietor um, uh, macros, uh, these proprietor macros uh, being created by Jason Dassett. Uh, he's actually going to be the one who is uh, demonstrating uh, at the uh, event on July 19th uh, that we're going to be doing here for Access Chicago. And, um, and then there's an the audio production uh, course as well, uh, which is also taught by uh, Derek Lane. Does the Reaper course cover MIDI only, or does it also cover, for example, I'm, I'm using Reaper right now to produce this podcast. So would it cover producing podcasts and spoken word material as well, or is it exclusively MIDI? Uh, it is uh, audio, it's MIDI, it's... Right. Uh, the whole thing? What we do. Yeah, we, we have to, um, we have to uh, customize quite a bit. Uh, so it's kind of whatever. We just trained a Reaper uh, learner not too long ago here. And she really wanted it for uh, kind of more in a novice lane, more of a, as a hobby. You know, she sings, she plays piano, and she wanted to record her own stuff. Well, that also turned into um, putting together podcasts for her job, and which was a thing that she didn't even think that was going to happen. But, you know, she saw how easy it was and, um, and told that her boss was like, hey, look, how about it? And she was like, well, how about it? <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so it worked out well. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's the gamut. I mean, from the bottom to the top. And I suppose if you're going to be running your own company, you can choose the software that suits you best. And Reaper is an amazing package in terms of accessibility and it's cross-platform, of course, which is nice. Uh, it has a really robust API, uh, tools like Osara, are doing a great job of making it accessible. But if you're going to go and work in someone else's studio, you're probably going to have to learn Pro Tools, right? Yeah, but you know, Pro Tools, uh, Jonathan, it, it, it is, the, uh, is, is a flagship um, uh, software um, in a lot of uh, bigger institutions. And, you know, uh, these movie houses, any kind of post-production house, um, they're normally going to have that particular software. Um, does do you have to really have that that kind of training under your belt? Well, no, absolutely not. I mean, you know, a file is a file at the end of the day. Um, but I will say this: 
you know, if you want to communicate with uh, the bigger studios and, and stuff like that, um, Pro Tools is probably something that a person would want to know um, for a lot of reasons. Um, and we're also moving into uh, uh, into certifications for uh, Pro Tools too as well. How much do these courses typically cost to take? Um, well, the cheapest course I believe we have is uh, is the voiceover course, which which is the uh, Mac OS screen reader, um, and I think that's two hundred and forty dollars, um, and it can get as expensive as I want to say the all access native instruments course is something like $1,200. Um, give or take a couple of dollars, but right. you know, right. in the ball. And do people walk away with audio recordings of the course and, and written material, that kind of stuff? I would try not to do that. Uh, written material, yes. But uh, the audio recordings, we, we try not to do it because it's the instructor instructing as well. Um, however, um, we, <laughs> sometimes we have to, uh, you know, especially because it's so content heavy. Um, and so there's a lot of homework that's given. And so for a refresher, you know, we, we, will we'll, we'll let loose, um, the material, especially like in a Reaper course. I mean, there's a lot of available content, um, for a person, um, to grab hold of, uh, free content out there. Uh, and very, very good content, I may add. Um, so, you know, and, and we point them in those directions. We don't, we don't shield that um, because that's not what they, they don't, they don't pay us for that. You know, they, they, they pay tuition to be um, proficient. And in order to be proficient, uh, information is, is, is really your best friend. Zoom is a very good choice, I think. And of course, Mosin Consulting produces a book on Zoom, which I- well, Yep, it's available in the store. But one of the things that's great about Zoom in that situation is if the instructor has a Zoom account, they can enable what's called original sound and they can also turn on stereo so you can get some amazing audio from your instructor over Zoom. Yes, yes. Um, So sometimes, you know, and kind of back to the question that you asked earlier about the the, uh, recordings, Um, sometimes we have to. Uh, even besides the point of it being content heavy and it's being a refresher, uh, you know, it, it, there are certain recordings. And, and like I say, in the homework portion of it, um, they definitely walk with that. Uh, they, they they have to because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, if there's two classes per week, uh, to, the off time, we're expecting for them to come back. And, <laughs> and let's pick up what we left off at. You know, and, and, and if it's going to be any kind of review, it should be very, very short and, and, and just a reminder and not relearning. And you are actually going to be at Access Chicago uh, very soon on the 19th of July, I think. IC Music will be there giving a, a kind of a live demo, which sounds really fun. Oh, yes, yes. That is going to be uh, the grandest. Um, we're actually launching our virtual classes that day. Um, so Jason Dessen, um, the uh, machine and complete control and mixing in Pro Tools trainer, will be uh, flying into Chicago. And um, he's going to be demonstrating on a live stream 
of um, he's going to be demonstrating machine and complete control. I think that's going to start right at nine o'clock Central Standard. Um, that's going to be an hour long episode. And then we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Um, and I'm not really too sure of the times. I know I should be, but the times are still a little bit kind of loose. Right. Um, um, but uh, kind of roughly at the 1130, 11 o'clock time frame, uh, we'll be moving into uh, film scoring. Uh, he's going to score a three minute film. Uh, he's going to do that in Pro Tools. The third episode is, um, I believe it kind of starts at like 1.30 or something like that. Uh, Central Standard once again. Uh, and that's going to be a recording session in Pro Tools. Um, this is also being sponsored by Avid, I may add. Um, thanks to uh, Ed Gray and, and the team over there. Um, they support us heavily um, in, 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 in this training. So, yeah, we're going to have a recording session, a live session there on the spot with an artist. Her name is Nola Ade. And um, she is from Chicago uh, by way of Nigeria at the, let me see, that's going to be 2.30 p.m. um, Central Standard. That will be the uh, Logic Pro. uh, And that's going to be a pre-production demonstration. So um, just basically creating uh, a project and, 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 and seeing how things work actually in logic. Um, and that's the Apple product. Cool. So these are going to be live streamed, are they? So people can tune in and have a listen. They're going to be live streamed. Um, as a matter of fact, um, if everyone in, it, it would go on to Facebook, if you go to the IC Music LLC Facebook, which is I S E E M U S I C. LLC, um, uh, and that's our Facebook page. If you like that page, uh, then you will get the notification with the link uh, for the actual live stream. Super. And if people would like to know more about IC Music and how they might be able to participate in the classes, what's the best way to do that? Well, um, you can go to our website, which is www.com. ICmusic.org. It's www.iseemusic.org. Um, all of the information is there. Um, if you have any questions, uh, there is a uh, contact form that you can fill out there. And I'll be glad, uh, or someone on the staff here would be glad to, 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 to satisfy any kind of question. Uh, well, well, as it as, as it pertains to audio production and training for the blind, <laughs> yeah. super. Well, it's great to catch up with you on this, and congratulations on all you're doing. It sounds like it must be very rewarding when you see somebody really taking this information that you've given them and running with it and turning it into gainful employment and independence and meaning, and that that, that must be very positive. Jonathan, I, man, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't say it enough. Um, it, it is, it is, it is why, is why I do what I do. Um, our hand over hand training, uh, the first day it's done, you know, the learners usually come up to me and say, thank you. I, I didn't, 
this is exactly what I wanted. I mean, you're in a full-fledged production house at this point, in a, in a recording studio. You're, 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 you're hands-on. Every, everything is there, you know, and, and things that you only hear about are now a reality. They're there. It's tangible. Um, and, you, you know, I think that's one of the, another great thing about the hand-over-hand model. Um, if I had anything that I would say, it would be that the I I wish we could make it tangible in the in the virtual model, you know. Uh, but you, you you know you don't you don't have that luxury, obviously. Um, however, though, it's a much cheaper uh, training. You know, it's much more affordable, I should say. Uh, and uh, you know, I think our our hand over hand model is something the tuition is like somewhere between twenty two twenty five thousand dollars for the two months. So obviously, being sponsored by rehab services is more of an option. It's not too many people walking around with that in their pocket. Um, and then, so we've taken that training, put it into the virtual format, and able to get it down to like you, like you know, like. Before, like what we talked about, it's now it's a couple of hundred bucks, you know, a thousand bucks, five hundred bucks, and 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 it just makes sense for people, and they just get it. So it it is, it's rewarding to now make it really really affordable, um, and still have that that level of quality available. An absolute pleasure to talk to Byron Harden, and that website again is www dot ic music all joined together that is i s e e music dot org check it out nice accessible site and you can find out what they offer there thanks for listening to the blind side a production of mosin consulting on the web at mosin dot org <laughs>